Hi there, and welcome back to Better Call Shaul, where your hosts Shaul and Levy take on topics within spirituality, mental health, and the law life and culture of Judaism. This episode, we sat down with Obad Shataya, a Palestinian man who grew up in Nablus in the West Bank during the Second Intifada, and is now the director at Zimam, which works with the leaders of tomorrow to build a more democratic society to create a space, quote, free from occupation, free from extremism. We discussed the Palestinian narrative in the conflict, why Obada and most Palestinians believe that there is an occupation, our differences of opinion, the two-state and other potential solutions, and how a new generation from both sides can possibly open up dialogue to end the world's most enduring conflict. Let us know what you think. Welcome to another episode of Better Call Shul, and today we'll be discussing the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And we have our guest here today, Obada Shataya, Director of Advancement at Zima. Obada is a community organizer from Nablus who grew up during the Second Intifada. After receiving a Fulbright scholarship in 2015, Obada moved to Washington, D.C., and today he holds an MA in Conflict and Security from George Mason University. A believer in the power of education, while in the United States, he co-founded One Voice on Campus, a fellowship giving U.S. students an opportunity to learn about the Palestinian-Israeli conflict and advocate for its resolution. Having traveled, studied, and researched extensively to learn from other people's and nations' experiences, Obada believes that the action needed for both ending the occupation and advancing Palestine to become a prosperous state is one and the same, creating a responsible society and an accountable leadership. So, can you share with us a bit why this topic interested you to have a discussion with Obama about? Yeah, I mean, it's always interested me, more than interested me, but on my mind, because, I mean, very obviously, one sees a lot of pain and suffering in Israel and um, amongst Israelis and Palestinians. And when one sees suffering, I think one wants to see if one can reach out and do something about it. And so it's always been on my mind that, and, and, and both sides are suffering. <laughs> Let's be honest, it's not, uh, it's not just the Palestinians that are suffering. Israelis are suffering as well. You might want to kind of draw equivalents who's suffering more, but why wouldn't you want to try and find a solution? I mean, to me, surely, Surely when you see suffering in the world, you want to see if there's something that can be done. And I know that every Tom, Dick and Harry's tried to find a solution to this problem. Right. But, but I don't think you give up just because every Tom, Dick and Harry has failed. So that's why it's on my mind. Yeah, that's good. That's a good enough reason. Yeah. <laughs> now, by the way, I didn't, you didn't, uh, I didn't give you a chance to introduce yourself, but did I miss anything out that uh, they'd like to add in? First of all, welcome. Thank you. Welcome Thank back you. again. Thank you so much. Well, you said it all. I always like to highlight that I'm from Nablus, you know, this beautiful city, which is over 2000 years old and, and famous for really nice things. So my message to the audience is if you're ever in Nablus, just go and try the canapé there. Nice. <laughs> you have to tell them what canapé is. Yeah, that's a dessert made with cheese and sugar syrup. If you eat too much, you may get diabetes, but otherwise you'll enjoy it. <laughs> cool. And, and, and what he's not, what, what um, Abad didn't mention is that his family has a um, franchise on all the shops in Nablus. Yeah. <laughs> sure thing. I, I, I wish that was true. <laughs> what was it called again? Knafe. Yeah. Go to uk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Maybe that's a UK, future UK company. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly, exactly. Promo code Abad. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> One of the first questions that we wanted to discuss was why, why is there a belief that, you know, most of the listeners, I assume, are, would be Jewish listeners or people when they hear something, something like there's an Israeli occupation, right? Right away, it triggers them to like, what do you mean? What occupation? You know, whether it's based on the maps or the war, why would you say that there is an Israeli occupation? What does that mean? And I have one thing to that, if I yeah. can, before you answer. You know, we, we had a bar to come and speak to our rabbis in our rabbinic training academy. 
and uh, Lady, you put on Facebook, you know, sort of yeah. the fact that we'd done that. And boy, did we get some vitriol <laughs> in response. I was, I was really shocked. <laughs> so I'm just gonna, I'll just, I just want to read you one or two that relate to this. So somebody said, what, what occupation? One could not occupy their own land. On top of that, there's never been a state of Palestine. The fact that you accept there's an occupation shows just how misguided some members of the Jewish community are. It is always and will be our land. The Palestinians have had a state six times, but they always say, no, I'm not sure we got six from. Now, now, that was the polite one. No one ever said all rabbis are clever, but honestly, who the heck invites a fox to lecture the chickens? <laughs> Maybe these rabbis should just stick to praying. <laughs> yeah, that's a <that's> comment. <laughs> that is a good comment, isn't it? And then here's the last one. You Orthodox Jews recognize the Arab narrative? If yes, it's a disgrace. <laughs> so, so there we go. So with that in mind, Abad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Beautiful, beautiful introduction. Um, so actually, a lot of the times when we um, think about this conflict, we think about it in you know large international terms. We look at international law. We look at who had a state ever in their lives and who didn't and what kind of state and so on and so forth. But for me, when I talk about the occupation, first of foremost, I talk about the experiences that I went through growing up and that I go through today. So for instance, growing up to go to school from my village to Nablus, I had to cross two checkpoints. And when the soldiers decided that I cannot go through these checkpoints, I had to go through the mountain. And then when I traveled, whenever I traveled outside of Palestine, and I'm a lucky Palestinian because I'm able to travel because I, you know, you get invitations from places around the world. That's how Palestinians get visas in the first place. So when I traveled to the U.S., for instance, I needed to get my visa from the U.S. Embassy in Jerusalem. I could not get a permit, and it's like as though that's one, the only place in Palestine where you can get a visa. It's as though you're being invited to go in illegally. Hmm. And then I traveled to the U.S. and lived in the U.S. for three years, roamed pretty much the whole U.S. And upon my return, there's this 18-year-old soldier who stops me at the border of my country, deciding whether or not I can enter. So that is an occupation. It's the, the checkpoints. It's the control of my life. It's the control of my land. And when I say my land, it's, not, it's metaphorical, but also uh, literally, it's like the land that my dad bought. Right. Um, all of it is under Israeli control. Mm. So that's an occupation. You know, it's interesting about it, you say that. What, what you're saying ultimately, what I hear you saying is that is that forget the, the semantics of it all you're under military rule now now i just think that that word occupation as you can see from these comments over here is a very sort of uh, loaded word from the jewish side of things but i don't think anybody can disagree that it is under military rule and as i'm as i'm listening to you what i'm hearing is that it sounds to me like people get caught up in in what's right and wrong you know you're saying like international law like I was reading an article just yesterday that was saying that, well, according to the, the mandate for Palestine in 1922, Jews are allowed to settle anywhere they want, even in Jordan, potentially. And the United, States, the United Nations resolution on the, on the partition was a recommendation, not law. And so the mandate is law, the partition. I'm sure you've heard this, this argument before. But to me, I think all of this is a bit of a red herring. Because what matters to me is not who caused the problem or who's responsible or why or what or the history. What's the solution? Mm -hmm. That to me is the question we have to look at over here. Because I don't think anybody, in my mind, not Israelis and not Palestinians, want Palestinians to live under, under military law, under military rule. Yeah, 
Uh, you know, it's funny because the discussion the discussions already getting deeper from from the very beginning. Yeah. And and exactly, I agree that the solution is the most important. But for us, in order for us, I thought this was always going to come at the end of the episode. In order for us <laughs> to get a solution, we need to recognize that because to me, a solution can only come when there is a rebalancing of power in this conflict. Because currently, there is Palestine or the Palestinians who do not even have an army do not have a recognized state. And there's the state of Israel, which has the military edge. So in order for us to have a, some kind of a solution or even negotiations, because if you and I negotiate and I have all the power and you have no power, then you're just going to tell me what to do. So recognizing the reality is really important. Yeah, that's really interesting. Because yeah. you, look, you can look at history and then you know each side, each narrative can go back in history and say, well, it's really our land or it's really our land. And that's a whole other conversation. But I feel like if you're going to try to come to a resolution to a conflict, you kind of want to look at the present and say, those are all factors of history, but right now we still find ourselves in a conflict. Everyone still has their own narratives. It hasn't gone anywhere in the past 30, 40, 50, whatever amount of years. Let's look at present what's going on and try to find out, figure out a solution based on the present rather than the past. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And here I want to say that when I did my master's in conflict resolution, one of the interesting things that I learned is that you cannot beat a narrative. So I can disagree with your narrative, I can have my own narrative and hold it tight, but what I cannot do is end your narrative or like kill your narrative. Right. Because a narrative is just a story and the more you beat it, the more, the stronger it becomes. Right, mm, absolutely. We, Sean and I were talking about, there's the two-state solution, what would that look like? And there's a lot of those details and it's really hard to do on a podcast without maps and stuff, but which, which Obama has done the other day for us. But would you actually see peace with a two-state solution? Is that something that you would see as plausible or possible in current day? Yeah, I hope so. So going back a little bit, when I was first introduced to the two-state solution, maybe in 2010, it was a shocking idea for me because growing up in Palestine and understanding history, uh, a narrative from Palestinian perspective, and also for me, this is, this is the, the history, how it, had, how it was. Some hundred something years ago, Palestinians had the, this land. And like Ravashio had said earlier, it was called British Mandate Palestine. And supposedly, at least in theory, Britain was supposed to help Palestinians build institutions in order to be able to rule themselves. That was kind of the idea behind the mandate. So there's that. So Palestine, like Syria and Jordan and Iraq and so on, all of them are, are independent now. But then in the case of Palestine, there was Jewish immigrants who started coming to the land. And then, of course, there was a lot of conflict. And then more Jews from the Arab world came to the land. And then these immigrants decided to create. There was a war. The Arabs lost the war. And the Palestinians were left with 22% of the land. And that's a two-state solution. And that was extremely unfair to me. Uh, but what I came to understand afterwards is, of course, maybe I had a naive understanding of the world, but the world is not as fair or just as we want it to be. And the fact is, we need to be pragmatic sometimes. And then slowly but surely, I began to understand the meaning of the concept planned for peace. And that's how I kind of became a supportive of the two-state solution. We need to end this conflict, the bloodshed. We need to ensure that the future generations, people who live in this land, are living in peace. I hope that, I still hope that the two-state solution is going to work. The caveat now is that over the past, some can say 10, some say 20 years, Israel has accelerated the building in the settlements in the West Bank to the extent that it's really hard now for them to remove these settlements. Right. I believe that it takes a very willing and very powerful Israeli prime minister 
to say this to the settlers, well, the peace and this land depends on your removal or your you know, relocation, and you've got to get out. So until then, then there's no two-state solution. To be completely honest, now it doesn't look like there's a prime minister who can say that to the settlers. Right. Yeah, as in the current, the, uh, in recent weeks. Uh, yeah. With uh, yeah. Khalid yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, it's interesting what you said, and I'm just thinking about this article I read again, is that um, it was saying that the, the argument it was making was that Jews are allowed to settle in the West Bank illegally. And through international law, that Jews should be allowed to settle. And, and you know, I think to myself, maybe it's legal, maybe it's not, but is it sensible? <laughs> I think that's a more important question. I don't think the legality of it is what's important over here. I think what makes sense to do, and to me, why does it make sense when, as, as, look, I'm not an Israeli, and, and so you can, on some level, you can say, who am I to say anything? You know, you have, you, you have a bit more credibility to speak than I do about it. Oh, from that side, you know, in a way, perhaps you need an Israeli sitting here to have a bit more credibility, and, and I recognize that, and I, I appreciate that. So let's kind of, you know, just kind of file that away for a minute, but I do recognize it's an important issue. I do feel that it does affect me as a Jew, because there is a lot of, you know, when you have the recent uh, issues in, in Gaza, there was a significant upswing in anti-Semitism yeah. in this country. Mm -hmm. And therefore, it does blow back on me. And therefore, on some level, I do have some level of say, because I'm not entirely unaffected by it. But to me, as an Israeli living in Israel, why, why would I want my children to be in an army? Why would I want there to be rockets coming over from Gaza and, and people will say, well, it's impossible. There's nothing you can do about it. I want to at least try, you know, and well, we've tried 50 years of solutions and nothing's happened. Well, in my mind, keep trying, keep going. What, why give up? What, what, what do you just want to be satisfied with the status quo? Or, or you want to go and kill all the Palestinians? I mean, what, what do you want to do over here? You know, what, what, what's your options? I don't think there's a lot of options over here. None of them are, are that palatable. So, you know, to me, surely you want to try and find something and you want to, sometimes it takes a, a lot more effort to find something than just the basic effort that you put in. And maybe it requires a, a superhuman effort to try and do something about it. Well, I'll shoot a question back at you, Shell. This The question that you came up with is coming back to haunt you. But you, Shell asked this question. I don't know if he's asked you this in the past, but, you know, the, one, of the, one of the ideas is the Israeli forces, the IDF, or whatever control there is over the West Bank and Gaza, to kind of pull out that would be one version of a two-state solution and, and give total control and legal control. Well, we've tried that with Gaza and we kind of had Hamas taking over. Yeah, uh, so this is one of our questions. Yes, yeah, so I'm shooting your question back to well, you. Well, let and me now ask I'm asking you. <laughs> no, let me, I'm gonna, and I'm going to pass it on to Alcanto. That's okay. Because yeah, I ahead. think he's more in a position to answer that than me. Yeah, but, go so go ahead, Abad. What would you say on that? Yeah, I think I want to go back a little bit to, to the beginning of what you started saying about yeah. the legality. Yeah. Um, so, of course, here, I, I think, as far as I know, none of us is, is a lawyer here. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. definitely not the most well positioned to talk about it. But just in general, when we talk about the legality pre-1948 and pre-1947, that legality also um, allowed Palestinians to live anywhere in the land and so on. I mean, at the end of the day, these are the indigenous people who live there, whether these are Muslims, Christians. And after, during the war, a lot of these Palestinians were either forcefully removed, displaced, or fled as a result of the war. And then the same kind of international argument about the legality of anybody can settle wherever they want 
said that there is a partition plan and then said that there is a 1967 line and so on. So I don't think that we can continue to drag this legality into uh, where the settlers 100%. are yeah. settling today. And also there, I want to say, you know, if, if, there, if the settlers would like to continue to live with their living, there is this solution um, that is called two states, one homeland, which allows the Israelis to kind of live anywhere in the land between the river and the sea and the Palestinians to do the same. Where, but each of them, each the Palestinians separately, the Israelis separately, would vote for uh, separate governments. But the problem again is the imbalance of power. So Israel isn't allowing that to happen. Palestinians do not even. I I never got a permit to go to Jerusalem, um, let alone you know be able to go and live in Haifa, for instance. Um, so that is one thing. In terms of you know the two-state solution pulling out, the situation is a bit more complicated than just Israel pulling out because Israel needs to pull out and Israel also needs to not control the borders anymore. So in Gaza, now, I'm not sure actually which one is worse, 8,000 settlers sitting inside Gaza and, the, and Gaza's open, or 8,000 settlers outside of Gaza, pulled out of Gaza, but then Gaza is living a, a siege that is suffocating the people who live in there. So this is another thing. So if Israel wants to pull out, they cannot control, continue to control the Jordan Valley, for instance, and control. When I come back to Palestine, there is again an 18-year-old who tells me what to do. Right. And that's why it requires, of course, negotiations and, and so on. In terms of you know, what ensures the Jewish people or the Israelis that pulling out of the West Bank wouldn't do the same, Again, so when Sharon pulled out of Gaza, the president of the Palestinians back then said, let's coordinate this. Let's make sure that this is done in a formal way, which allows the Palestinian security forces to control this area. And the Israelis refused. And we, from the Palestinian perspective, there's a belief that this is one of the reasons why Hamas became a very strong kind of military power in, in Gaza, and then they were allowed to take over. The, this is one. Two, of course, in politics, there's nothing that is guaranteed. How we do this is by building trust, by doing things that demonstrate to the other that you know we're willing to move forward, we're willing to approach a solution. And what we see today is the opposite of that. Of course, there's the wall that separates the two people, so no interaction pretty much between Palestinians and Israelis. Mm -hmm. And the only thing Palestinians see these days in terms of actions is continuous building of settlements, continuation of checkpoints, and so on. Mm -hmm. So it, it's that's why one of the most kind of overriding feelings in Palestine now is helplessness. Like, what can we do? You know, things are changing in a negative way, and we cannot do anything about it. What do you say about, about the fact that, uh, the fact, you know, everyone talks about facts in these things, so I'll use a different word. It, the seem, it, it seems, or it looks like from the news that Abbas, Abbas uh, cancelled the elections because he was worried that Hamas would, uh, would win, basically. So it looks like even without pulling out, that's the way it's moving already in the West Bank. Yeah. You know, the other day someone asked me about Hezbollah and how Hezbollah is a danger to Israel. And I asked them, I said, why do you think, why, what's the interest of Hezbollah firing in Israel? Just for fun, just because they like it? If you think about it a bit deeply, Hezbollah's core existence is dependent on Israel's existence. If there is no Israel, Hezbollah, which is an armed militia in Lebanon, has no reason to exist. There needs to be a Lebanese army that has you know, a monopoly over power and over weapons and so on. Mm -hmm. So 
I'm not saying this is exactly the same situation, but what I'm saying is gets a lot of its legitimacy out of the fact that there is an occupation, out of the fact that, you know, Palestinians were being forced out of their houses in Jerusalem, that pr people were praying at the mosque, were attacked, and so on. So that, it, if you look at the most recent, you know, version of, event, of events, what Hamas did is, you know, sh they saw the situation, they fired the rockets, and the whole Palestine saw it as a response, and then Hamas's popularity went up to the sky. So it, it's, it's true that Hamas is popular now because of what happened recently. In terms of the, the elections, of course, it was extremely unfortunate that President Abbas canceled the elections. You know, we were, personally, I never voted in an election and I traveled back to Palestine to vote. Unfortunately, oh, the elections were canceled. Were, were canceled. And let me say here on the elections that I don't, I don't know if, you know, no one can really say for sure who was gonna win and so on, but even if Hamas and Fatah got a majority, say 60-70%, there was a 30% which I was confident was going to go to a new kind of uh, movement, to a new generation, a generation that speaks my language, that believes in my values. A change, a third way. Mm -hmm. uh, and that was extremely helpful for me. You see, Abadi, this is what I'm, I'm, makes me a little bit hopeful. Um, speaking to somebody like yourself and, you know, and the interactions we've had and the conversations we've had and what, what your organization sort of says that it does, the idea of a, of, a, of a new Palestinian leadership, of a more responsible Palestinian leadership, of, a, of a, perhaps even a more democratic Palestinian leadership. I mean, you would be the first uh, Arab state in the Middle East uh, to have succeeded with a democracy. But it would be an incredible Tunisia thing. Tunisia is doing a good job, but yes. <laughs> Tunisia is doing a good oh, job. Oh, okay, that's fine. Yeah. I don't Tunisia in the Middle East. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's <laughs> get away with that still. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad I do the Middle East. Yeah. <laughs> Save myself. <laughs> but so, so, you know, I would, to me, that's where hope lies. But, but what you're saying about it, it discourages me. And, and, and again, there's probably many Jews that would hate me for saying this, is... is one wonders, you know, if Israel is making the overtures that it has in the past, it seems like since 2008, Israel's given up. And people will say, well, as they do say, uh, Palestinians have been offered six, six times they could have had a state and, and, and look what Hamas does and they're firing rockets and, and they, they don't, it's, it's, all a, um, it's all a Trojan horse. They don't really want to the, the West Bank, they want the whole of Israel, and it's just one step to, to, to the next, you know? So, you know, who knows? Who knows who's right over here? But, but my feeling I still come back to, maybe people will say naively, is that surely when we have a group of people who didn't choose my words carefully here, but don't seem to have the rights that, that others in the area have and, and, and feel in a certain way, rightly so, what's, what's the word, aggrieved at such a thing, surely we want to try and find a way to see if, there's, if we can do something about that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and here, I think it's really important to stress that something, which is that a lot of people who mostly live abroad, sadly also a lot of Israelis who are kind of absented from the sea and of what's going on in Palestine and the occupation and so on, think of the situation as static. That's not true. This is, situation is very dynamic. Problem is it's dynamic in the wrong direction. Right. So what I'm saying is when Oslo was signed, there were settlers in the West Bank and there were settlers in Gaza, but they were somehow removable. 
and they were you know small enough in number that's one and two there was the will there was a rabin who you know was a strong leader uh, and so on who was willing to do things to make uh, peace happen and and ever since if we look at it if, if we think about the israeli settlements as you know fingers that are going into this west bank or the, the future palestinian state this is the big, biggest piece of the future palestinian state and as time goes by we're going to get to a point of no return so if israel wants to continue to have a jewish majority they need to stop and to go back so yes. what i'm saying is yes. it's not only hope yes. it's also the reality so we have a few options one state does israel want to live in an does, does israel want to create a formal apartheid state there's crazy discrimination now but do, do we want do, do they want it to become south africa or do they do they want to pull out because surely palestinians do not want to live on little islands called Nablus and Ramallah and so on, yeah. surrounded by settlers who have a lot, a lot more rights than them. Yeah. Especially because, again, like this is not, you know, the Palestinians are not 500,000 and Israel is like 8 million. No, there's 7 million, 7 million between the river and the sea now. So it's hope and reality. And anybody who cares about people who live in that part of the land need to, you know, know more and need to act more. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned also the your voice, kind of like the new. I guess it's you call it probably like a younger, the new generation. And you you are the director of advancement at Zimam. Can you tell us a bit about what Zimam does and how how maybe that helps to I guess give a bit more de-radicalization? I know not every you know not the whole everyone living in Palestinians are are radical. I think that's that's foolish to say, obviously. But there's obviously a, a feeling of radicalization going on. And like you said, people are they're pushed into a corner, and and it's kind of like Hamas will shoot rockets and then people will support them, not necessarily because everyone supports violence against Israel, but because they see that as their only hope. What is Zimam doing to kind of yeah. Yeah, counter that, let's say? And, and do you see like Zimam as like the moral counterpart of Hamas? Yeah. So in terms of, you know, this resolution to this conflict, there needs to be three pieces at least. One, international community acting. Two, Israelis acting. Three, Palestinians acting. The international community, we know we need pressure. We talked about it at the beginning to create a balance between uh, a very powerful state and a non-state thus far, mm-hmm. because it's not recognized in the UN. The Israelis need to organize. Israel has been shifting right. They need to organize and come back to the center, uh, come back to basically seeing things as they are and actually thinking about the future, not just the land grab and, and you know what the settler movement can do now. And then there is Palestine. So what we can do in Palestine, there is two approaches, I would say, uh, to how people think about the conflict in Palestine. One is we cannot do anything until there's an end to the occupation. And there's one, which is our approach, where we say we need to create positive action all the time. This land is full of negative actions. This is full of bloodshed. There's, it's full of suffering. We need to create a positive action. So this is the, the core of what Ziman does. And in more uh, practical terms, what we do is to train the young Palestinians, give them the skills, the confidence, and the network to be able to lead their communities. So if we have down the line municipalities that are functional, municipalities that are clean, municipalities that can compete in the Middle East and internationally, then surely the Palestinians um, are closer to becoming a stronger state, to gaining independence, to ending the occupation. So this is one side of things. The other side um, is more on the values side of things. So we believe in um, a civil society that is open, that is liberal, so liberal, it's not in the American liberal, you know, not in the economic sense, it can be liberal in the economic sense, but rather respecting the difference, you know, 
what your religion is does not matter. What, how you dress does not matter. What language you speak does not matter. What matters is that you're human. You have a different opinion. And they, we also focus on nonviolence. So that's kind of what Zimam does. We bring in the top-notch people, emerging youth in Palestine, and we train them to be the true leaders of the future who believe in our values. Hmm. And this is extremely important now because over the past 20 years, the Palestinian political parties are busy pursuing their self-interest. Right. Uh, and so Hamas and Fatah are after their own power. And, and this, is, this is not just in Palestine. In general, when there is two poles in, in a country, two very strong kind of parties, they, continue, they usually fight each other, not quote-unquote the enemy. So Zimam is kind of taking um, over this platform, which is empty, to empower youth. Do you see this idea spreading or do you see, because obviously this is a non-violent, non-radical kind of movement. Do you see that most people on the ground would want to support something like that? Or do you think most people would want to support something that's a bit more, because they're so fed up, something a bit more radical, something a bit more confrontational? Yeah. So first of all, I think we're radical, just in a different way. <laughs> yeah, radical, yeah. So it, it's I guess non-violent. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We're non-violent, radical. And I would say that the vast majority of Palestinians want to continue to live their lives want to have peace right want to you know like have probably more money and i said house like like the american dream yeah <laughs> a little bit in a sense and so here we have two types of audiences one is these emerging leaders these are people who are political already they're just looking for a home mm. and these i think enjoy being with zimam because we hear everybody we don't shut down and slowly but sure slowly but surely they get to understand that the best kind, even if they have a little bit of an exclusive mentality, when they come and see that everybody gets a chance to speak and do it as they want and so on, they absorb these values. Yeah. The other audience that we have is the public. And with the public, sad to say, but the public can be swayed right and left. Right. So we are spreading our messages, sending our messaging out, hoping that they'll sink as deeply as possible inside the spirits of people. Right. Yeah, now, I'm just wondering if there's any push, just following up on that, any pushback from Hamas to know that there's Zimam and do they oppose it? You know, does the PA, the PLO, yeah. do they know that there's a Zimam and do they oppose it? Yeah, yeah. So, so Hamas closed down our office in Gaza a few okay. years ago. We continue to operate in Gaza. It's under the radar. Funny, of course, <laughs> Hamas knows that there is a Zimam in Gaza right. and we have a coordinate, coordinators and, and the, we do work. Uh, and I hear that sometimes, you know, people come in to listen to from the, the ministries that are run by Hamas to listen to what's right. going on. Once we tried to do a big, big event a couple of years ago that had to do with music and so on, and they didn't give us uh, permits. Oh. Uh, so, yeah, so Hamas does that there's a yeah. but they're managing it in the same way that, you know, kind of any state would manage the politics within it. Right. Um, and the PA, theoretically, we're on the same line as the, in, we're on the same page as the PA. The PA just talks, they don't do anything. So they're talking about, they always talk about elections, young people and so on, but you know, the average age in the PA is 70. So mm -hmm. there, there's gonna be movement there. And of course the PA um, knows about Zimam and, and so in, in the West Bank, people outside may not imagine how these systems function, but in the, I know about the West Bank quite a bit. So the way NGOs work, the, the financial system and so on, there is extreme, it's extremely strict. So you could, what I'm trying to say is you cannot function if there is if the PA does not know about you, and the PA does not approve your work. Tell me something about it. My my impression is that majority, vast majority, maybe, you can, you can tell me of the 
Palestinian people are very strongly Muslim. And, and it's a, it's a, it's sort of a quite a radical, the, the, the inclination in Islam or the sect or the direction is quite a radical sort of Sunni, maybe Wahhabi type um, of Islam. So it's very hard for you to fight against that. That that's some you know when you have sort of people who are extreme, extremely radical perspective on religion. I, I think if if there was a more moderate Muslim approach in 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 the, over there, then then you might have a better chance of sort of trying to change that. But against such a radical form of Islam, is, is there any hope that you'll be able to make inroads? There is a lot of hope because again there is two sides to things. There is the population and there is the preachers. So this is new also, even, you know, the, the kind of the more radical Wahhabi approach to, to things is new. This is 80s onward. Before that, there was a completely, almost a completely different Palestine. And this is not just in Palestine, actually. It's across the, 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 the Arab world. So from the Iranian revolution, the Saudis trying to counter the Iranian revolution and, and kind of compete with them and who's more religious. And that's how things began over there, funny enough. But... So in Palestine, the preachers, to me, they are they are radical, but the people are the people. The people continue, people go to, uh, I would say the majority of Palestinians go to the mosque. I don't want to say the majority, of course, I, don't, I, know, I have no stats, but I'm trying to imagine maybe 50% of Palestinians go to the mosque on Friday only. And that's very little if you want to look at the uh, radical version of Islam, because you need to go to, to, to the mosque five times a day. And even those who go every day, they go maybe once and so on. And people are busy with their lives. People, you know, go to work in the morning and so on. So I don't think that people are radical. People are not radical. The, a lot of the preaching in, in, in places is radical. But also, let me say here that the PA is doing a very, I don't know how to, to, to describe it. It's not like I support PA policy on this or that, but they're doing an efficient, that's the word, an efficient job in kind of, directing the narrative at the mosque so they send the subjects of what needs to be talked to the mosque okay. to the to the preachers and to the people who are praying and so on right. but in short i truly believe that the people are not radical people but i believe the palestinians are extremely pragmatic actually but the radicals are always there in any side right. what what you know i've seen various uh, i can't bring you any evidence of this i've just seen various things at various times on, on the internet about how you know, these, these organizations that keep a watch on sort of the Palestinians and what's going on over there. And they say that in, in textbooks, in schools, you know, the PA approves them and there's a lot of anti-Israel rhetoric in there. Are you, you aware of anything of that or can you respond to that? Also, also anti, just an anti-Semitic as well, they say. Yeah. So I went to Palestinian schools. Personally, I can't remember anything of the sort. What I remember actually is that the curriculum is a rather a bit more neutral than I would expect it to be mm. because it's sponsored by uh, a lot of European countries. Right. So European countries approve these curriculums and look at them and, and so on and so forth. Um, this is one. But the other thing we need to remember is that Palestinians are living under Israeli occupation. So if I was writing the curriculum, I would probably say a lot about the occupation. I don't think there is enough about the occupation in the textbooks. So we just need to put things in context. Of course, anti-Semitism and xenophobia and so on are not tolerable on, on any level. But in terms of you know Israel and so on, the Palestinian does not need to read in a book that 
the Israeli army, for instance, you know, committing a lot of acts of aggression against Palestinians. Going to school, you're going to see that live. Right. So that that's kind of, you know, just just adding a bit of context to to what is here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, came back to something we said right at the beginning, just as you know, my kind of mind's sort of churning as we're having this conversation. Again, you 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 keep sort of stating saying the word occupation. And I know that you see it that way, you know, that, that's, that's fair enough. And, and I'm just kind of wondering uh, <laughs> what's going on in Abada's mind when he says that, because in my mind, when you say, the, let, let's just take that word, because it's, a, it's a quite an explosive word from a Jew's perspective, as, as, as I showed you on our Facebook page, you know, that's the word that when you say it, a lot of Jews will get up in arms and say, how can you say such things? It's not an occupation, this, that, and the other. To me, it comes back to the point of like, why choose points of conflict? Why look at right and wrong? You know, we could argue about what's right and wrong forever. We can argue, is it an occupation? Isn't it an occupation? And, and to me, that's the wrong direction. That's not going to get us anywhere. That, that debate is, is a waste of time because you have people who firmly believe it's not, people who firmly believe that it is. And to try and change minds on that, I don't see any, any hope to change minds on that. You might say, well, your goal is for the international community. You want the international community to see that and put pressure on Israel, which perhaps I would, I would understand why you would, why you'd want to do that. But to me, I just think we need to look in a direction. And I'm going back to what I said earlier of how can we find a solution? Let's forget what is and what, no, we can look at what is. What, what is, is there is Palestinians are living under a military rule. Semantics, occupation, not occupation, fine. Let the, I don't think anyone can argue there's a military rule. In, in the Palestinian territories over there. Who, who can say that? Fine, don't even call it Palestine if you don't want to. Let's call, call it the West Bank, call it Judea and Samaria. The words are all, there's so much rhetoric going on over here. I feel that bottom line, you have a group of people who are living under a military rule. And, and I, as a Jew, would feel I want to try and do something about that. I, I don't like that. I don't like that going on in, in what I relate to as my country of Israel. I, I feel like, you know, that to me is the, is the crux of the matter. And, and I'm not sure that, how you're going to argue with that. You know, what, what are you going to disagree with? Who, who would say, no, they wouldn't like to solve that? Other than some radical, crazy right-wing Jews who want all Palestinians shoved into the sea. You know, other than that, to me, surely that's something that could gain, um, could gain sympathy and, and traction. That just, just looking at that part of it, Instead of getting into the debate as to who's right and who's wrong, I feel that you've gone forever till eternity, you know, the, 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 you know, the, the, the world will finish, your universe will end and the Palestinians still won't have a state, you know. So that, what, what do you think about that, Abada? Yeah, let me say at the beginning also that occupation is not actually the extreme word here. It's actually the moderate. Like, a lot of people talk about settler colonialism, about the whole thing. And of course, that's, that's a debate for another time. Yeah, 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 yeah. Fair enough. Nice. That's not what you're saying. But, you know, here, the, you know, the use of it is not to say, to tell us, like, I'm not, I, people who say occupation are not trying to put a finger in, in the other person's uh, eye. It's rather just stating the facts, you know, yeah. military control. How is that? What's another word? Like a synonym? Yeah, no, I understand what you say. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and in terms of, I agree with you that the solution needs to be at the center of, of conversations. And also, like the question, the rhetorical question you asked, who wouldn't want to end this conflict and end the suffering? I think that it's important to highlight and state that 
conflict between individual humans is different from con conflict between states. So conflicts between you know the three of us or the two of us, you know, we share a cake. Surely I'm going to give you half of it. <laughs> I'm going to give you at least you know you know a little bit than half. But you know, if I'm really hungry, but I'm going to give you like a part of it. There's emotions. There's this. There's that. And of course, I'm sure if we go and poll the Palestinians and the Jews, the absolute vast majority want to end the conflict, and mm. anybody else also in the world. The difference here is that this is an this is international relations. And unfortunately, most of the law that judges international relations is a jungle law, meaning those who have power continue to exercise this power, and those who don't have it suffer what they must. Like you know, it said in the in the Philippines rule or the history of the Philippines. So this is this is what at stake here, and that's what I started with, meaning, of course, the people want to end the conflict, but if within this power imbalance, there cannot be. Palestinians don't have cards on the table. They don't have these cards. So that means Israel should be pretty comfortable, you know, continuing whatever they're doing in the control of the occupation, so on and so forth. Also not true, because like we said earlier, we're approaching a point of no return where these are a lot of people. Again, some maybe people abroad in, in, in the US and in the UK think, you know, Palestinians, there's a couple of neighborhoods in Israel. These are half of the population. And these are not, you know, people who are just going to give up on their These are also not, this is not Tibet and where people don't have self, uh, smartphones. Young Palestinians, you can throw them in the U.S., they live. You can throw them in, in any Western country, they live because they're the kids of the TikTok and the smartphones mm -hmm. and, and all that stuff. So in order for this to end, people need to take responsibility, not just think, oh, I want this conflict to end. People need to call up their members of parliament here and in the U.S. there congressmen and women and say, we want an, an end to this conflict in a just way, blah, blah, blah. I don't want to tell people what to, what to say. Everybody, uh, you know, says things in accordance with their values. But that is, we need serious action in order to create a balance which can end the conflict. You mentioned, so you're talking about taking serious action. So it reminds me of the, of the boycott. And this may be a bit sensitive for people. Funny, because this whole conversation can be I guess, you know, there are those who would have an open mind to it, those who might, you know, but with, with the boycott, people feel very strongly against it because that's kind of like the, you know, that's very, in, their, in a lot of people's eyes, it's very anti-Israel, obviously, and, and also affects the economic growth of Israel. Can you talk a bit about the boycott and why, let's say I'm someone, let's say, who doesn't, I'm very pro-Israel, pro I am, obviously, personally, and, and probably most Jews are. And when we see a boycott, we see that as kind of something that would really affect, again, financially, you know, the economic system of the country. What, what, what would you see? What are your thoughts on the boycott? And yeah, so there is the BDS movement, right. and there is boycott as a tactic. The BDS movement, it's, it's funny that we cannot really describe, you know, what is that? Because it's a very decentralized body, meaning the BDS in Palestine, uh, or BDS International, actually attacked Zimam at one point. And Zimam does not exactly do joint work all day. We, we work within Palestinian society. I've been talking about what we're doing. But for some reason, they attack Zimam. So the BDS movement is something that is very few. There are a lot of people who claim leadership there. There are a lot of people who contest that leadership. And there is a lot of mistakes that are being made. Boycott as a tactic, I believe, is legitimate and is actually important. Because if you think about it, pre-Gaza war, the the priorities of the Israeli society, you know, say there's 10 priorities. The conflict was like eight, nine, 10. 
And all of a sudden, after the war, so after, in other words, uh, rockets fell on Israel, that changed all of a sudden. The, the priority went up. It became, can't, can't remember for sure, but it became like three, four, something like that. Right. So, and this is violence. And that's not our choice, people who believe in nonviolence. So what is another way for uh, me as Palestinian or for the international community to nudge Israel and say, hey, there's an illegal occupation. You're controlling the lives of at least five point something a million people if you don't want to control the Palestinian sense of Israel. This needs to come to an end and you're hitting an iceberg sometime soon. We say the boycott as a, as a non-violent way. The state of Israel is not a bunch of Jewish merchants who are making some money to live. The state of Israel is a very strong state. Right. And I don't think even anybody uh, just wants to boycott to destroy. Maybe there are maybe people who want to boycott to destroy Israel, but that's not the point. The point is put pressure and the occupation. We are after construction, not destruction. Right. So you see that's kind of a non-violent way of nudging, of getting the international community to nudge Absolutely. Israel. Yeah. I think um, we're almost out with our time. I do want to finish with one final question, yeah. if and, I can. And Abadil, so after Shell's question, if you have any questions for us. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So what the final question just is covered a few times, and I'll just ask it like, like this guy did here. I'll state what he said. The Palestinians could have had a state six times, but they always say no. What would you respond to that? Yeah, this is, I don't want to call it <laughs> straight up Hasbara, <laughs> maybe it is. This is, a, you know, a generalization uh, that does not make a lot of sense, actually. So if you think about it, if you go back and uh, think about, again, the 1947 division plan, maybe today, if I am the, whatever, the leader of the Palestinian people, maybe I'm going to say yes, just because I've lived the fa past 70 years and I came to understand what the result, the consequence of not accepting that plan means. But for the leader who was there, there back then, the day before, you know, like, again, like Syria, like Jordan, they had the 100% of land that, that they, they are entitled to. And then all of a sudden, someone is giving them 45% uh, and the immigrants who just arrived in the country went to get another 45% and the rest is international uh, territory. So, and I'm not sure that was, you know, again, in hindsight, course, that was the wrong decision because they lost the war and so on from a career politic perspective. But if you think about it from a human perspective, it, I think it was a normal decision to take. After that, Palestine has been under occupation and has been the weaker player there. So every time the Palestinians go into negotiations, like I said earlier, have no cards really to negotiate with on the table, and they're being told what to do and what to say and so on. So every time they go in, they're like, okay, we offer you this minus a few things. And it's really hard for a Palestinian leader to go back to their people and say, well, I got you peace, no Jerusalem though. I got you peace, we haven't solved the refugee problem. I got you peace and Israel will continue to control the borders with, with, with Jordan. These are the final three of the final status issues. So it's not exactly accurate, I would say. Do you think today, let's say, if, if, if the Israeli government came to Abbas and offered him the peace plan of 2008, was it 2008 with Olmert? Yep. Do you think he would agree to it? I think he agreed to the 2008, actually. What, how I understand things is that it's go, it was going super well until Olmert went to prison. Uh -huh. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Slight problem. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Scuppered things a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> is there anything else, you'd, you'd, anything you'd like to ask us or something you'd like us to, to say, something we haven't touched on? I mean, I'm, I'm here to ask the questions, <laughs> but I want to 
going to say actually, what in general, what is, you know, for me, I want to focus on preparing, you know, I, I get asked about solutions all day. I feel these days, I feel like this is a distraction. And what we need to focus on is, like I said, prepare the ground for there to be not this solution because that solution doesn't seem to be there. So how do you envision like peace in that part of the world like, from your perspective? You know, I'll let you fix myself. <laughs> yeah, thank you, thank you, thank you. You know, this is something I always say to people. You know, people will come and they'll say, for example, a two-state solution is not going to work because it's because the because um, it's going to turn Hamas is going to take over, or, or you know, they're always a kind of critical of, of options and the possibilities. So I say to people, in my mind, it's very easy to criticize. Let's hear what your solution is. Let's hear what your answer is. Don't tell me what doesn't work. Anybody, anybody can say what doesn't work. Right. Tell me what will work. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> that, you know, and, and I feel you don't really have a right to criticize unless you've got an alternative solution. Yeah. yeah. And so I'm, I'm kind of I'm a little bit practice what I preach. Yeah. I don't criticize because I don't yeah. have an alternative yeah. solution. <laughs> got it, got it. Very good. <laughs> yeah. I, I wish I did, you know, and yeah. I do think that dialogue like this and I think an organization like yours preparing the ground and, and you know, just kind of staying in the game and, and not giving up on it, I think I would hope that maybe eventually sort of progress can be made. But I, I wish I had just a simple idea that I could wave a magic wand and and, and, and provide a solution. But the way I see it, there's three, Israel has three options at the moment, and none of them are in any way savory for Israel. One is it can annex, let's say, it could annex the, uh, the West Bank and, and make it part of Israel. Israel's never going to do that. Because if you annex it, you've got two choices. You can, you can give the Palestinians voting rights, in which case, as you say, you'd have, you wouldn't have a Jewish majority anymore in, in, in the state of Israel. Or you could not give them voting rights, in which case nobody could argue, I don't think that would be an apartheid state. Yeah. You know, so mm-hmm. I, I, right now you're kind of hanging on the fence here. Well, we haven't annexed it, but it's not ours, but it is. So you can kind of make claims that it's not, it's not apartheid because it's not part of our state, which, which I would actually say, which I would agree with. But so, so, that's, so those are two options. Another one is you could uh, create a state on the West Bank and, and, and just kind of separate it all off. And to me, that's what would be appealing to me because you just kind of make a clean break, you know, a simple clean break. But as you're saying, what are you going to do with the settlers? I've got no idea. And, and as this happens, my in-laws and many of my, you know, my I have two or three sisters-in-law and brothers-in-law living, living in settlements. So it's quite a, quite a practical question from my perspective. What are you going to do with the settlers? And then there's, I suppose the final one is, is what sounds like people are moving in a direction of nowadays, which is what you alluded to earlier, which is this kind of federation type thing. I don't know. It's to me, that's like, um, that's, that sounds like the, the most impossible of all, <laughs> you know, it's a, it's a dream and it would be an amazing setup, but I'm just not sure how you would ever get there. So I'm still a little bit of a two state solution man. And as the, as the least impossible of all options. Yeah, yeah, that's not bad at all. <laughs> and then again, I suppose the final one, and maybe this is what Israel's thinking, is, is status quo. Yeah. It's just carry on. You'll have a war every so often, you'll have more disgruntlement, you'll have problems, you'll have the international community putting pressure on you, but we've done that for 40 years, and we're doing 50 years, we're going to do another 50 years. Yeah. That, yeah. That's probably what's the way it's being seen. Yeah. 
you know, I'm someone who has practiced empathy for a while. So yeah. I, I put myself in, in other people's shoes and yeah. try to imagine things. What I want to like end on, and from my point of view is, let's, if I was uh, Jewish yeah. and looked at, you know, the one Jewish state which was established over the past, whatever, 2000 years or something, I wouldn't want my state to have a history of during the first 20 years occupying the people who are the indigenous inhabitants of the land who are today the Palestinian citizens of Israel and then for the rest of the 50 years 60 years 70 years ruling over another people by force and not giving them rights so the status quo makes Israel an evil state and I think slowly but surely a lot of I believe the vast majority of Jewish people are more and I believe that there will be a disagreement between the Jews and Israel. So this is almost approaching an iceberg. Yeah. So th- what I'm trying to say is the status quo is not static, like we said earlier, it's dynamic, yeah. Yeah. and yeah. it's going to lead to disaster. Well, I think that's a really important point, Arada, because I don't know if you're right or if you're wrong, but if you are right, then, then Israel can't just carry on like this. It needs to find a solution. Absolutely. And I think that that would be good because I think, you know, I think it's it's important that, you know, I think it was Golda Meir that said, I don't remember exactly her language that she used, and maybe it might not even been her, but it was an early Israeli politician who said that we, we hate, I don't think she said we hate the Arabs, but we are complaint to the Arabs so that we hate the Arabs because, not because they killed our children, but because they made our children into killers. And I think that's a strong point of view from a Jewish perspective. You know, we, we Jews do not want to live this way. We yeah. don't want to live this way. Yeah. You know, and I'll finish off with just a little sad story in my mind that was, that was shocking to me when I heard it, is, is we had a group of, I've ever told you this before, we had a group of injured Israeli soldiers here once and kind of to come for, you know, PTSD and rehabilitation, etc. And speaking to one of them once, and he was telling me he was in the Dubdavan, Dubdavan unit, which do a lot of um, work behind uh, in, in the West Bank and behind Palestinian lines, so to speak. And he said that he his unit at one point went into I don't know a Palestinian city, and and they kind of engaged with some terrorists and killed a few of them. I think they were aiming to catch capture them, but they ended up killing them. And and he he was telling me how. On it, you know, you might think that we are harsh and we are, you know, just hard people with no, with no, what's the word, with no compassion. He said, but I want to tell you that on the way home, what's it called, our personnel carrier ran over a cat. He says, and I want you to know, I was crying the whole way home because of that cat. <laughs> is yeah. that an amazing story yeah we we uh, palestinians make fun of stories like this all day yeah, right? yeah. <laughs> exactly and, and they say it's a joke yeah. probably it happens to be true yeah yeah, yeah. and it, you know with, uh, a lot of people in palestine look at the west and say you know a lot, in a lot of places where there yeah. is wars and so on they, they say oh look at these uh, people in the west they care about the cats and the dogs but they don't, don't care about the humans yeah yeah, yeah. Well, there <laughs> you, you know go. of course there's always two sides to, to the story. Probably yeah. your understanding of the story is different from mine. Yeah, yeah, That's yeah. That's why yeah. we're sitting here. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> there we go. There we go. Well, thanks so much about our coming. Well, sure. it's great, you know, and I do think it's important that we have dialogue and, and conversations like this. And I'm, I'm, you know, let's live in hope. Let's live in hope of a, of a brighter future for all of us. Absolutely. Thank you. Cool. Thank, Thank you very much. much. Thank you. Okay, that was great. Thank you. Always <laughs> <laughs> it was fun, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Isn't that amazing?
Look out for new episodes on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and all of your favorite listening platforms. And you can follow us, Tekken London, on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, plus our website, tekken.co.uk, for more great content. If you like this episode, share it or tell a friend. Let us know what you think. Send an email to levi, L-E-V-I, at tekken.co.uk. Hey, we might even discuss it on another episode. Thanks again for listening.